listen, I just like you guys, you're not digesting the media narrative and then believing that you are independent thinkers and there are more independent thinkers than we give maybe the world credit for. That's why so many people are long Bitcoin. We, we, we see on Twitter all the time, we are winning. I genuinely believe we as a Bitcoin, uh, as Bitcoin believers and something that's, you know, something that we share in our belief, that belief system is, is winning out over the long term. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome back and thank you for joining us here again. Today we spoke to Nick Batia, author of Layered Money. Nick is a financial researcher, adjunct professor of finance and business econ at the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business, where he teaches applied finance and fixed income securities. Nick also has experience at a U.S. Treasury's trading desk for a large financial asset manager. Layered Money is a must-read for anyone that wants a primer on the history of money and the necessity for an improved first layer of money. We discussed current geopolitics, how Russia could use Bitcoin as a workaround SWIFT sanctions, how the primary banks buy treasuries at auction from the treasury to hand them off to the Fed, burrito indexes, how Bitcoin will be an improved first layer of money in the future. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC or send us an email at blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail. Blue collar Bitcoin podcast is sponsored by CoinKite. CoinKite develops the most secure hardware wallet in the industry, the cold card. Whichever dictator in the world has popped up this week to threaten your sovereignty, you can be confident that your cold card will protect you and your hard-earned Bitcoin. So hodl those sats into a sovereign, dictator-resistant device whose only master is mathematical certainty. Violence has no power in a world where value is encapsulated in cryptographic fuck-you certainty. Cold card is a middle finger to fledgling autocratic leaders. Give them the middle finger. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nick, so glad you can join us today. Welcome to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Dan, I appreciate it, Josh. Nice to meet you guys. Absolutely. We're rounding out our favorite authors. We're making, uh, making some good time here. Yeah. What an amazing and delightful excuse to talk to people who've written some of the pieces we have benefited from the most. Your book, Layered Money, definitely being one of them. Also, uh, have grown to really appreciate your writing on the Bitcoin layer. It's, a, it's an awesome dose of a myriad of different topics. So you, you've been doing a ton of writing. Like, how are you finding all the time to do this writing amidst also teaching and other things? Well, it's, it's a great question. Um, I find myself feeling, uh, to be very honest, guilty that I'm not delivering enough to my subscribers. But I think that that is just um, <clears throat> the commitment that I've made to the readers that 
I want to be here to narrate Bitcoin and global macro uh, in a friendly uh, environment and a small community, true, too, because this is not the New York Times we're talking about. This is, you know, a few thousand people that are collectively Bitcoin enthusiasts uh, have likely read layered money. So you're talking about, you know, a smaller and smaller group of people and that are also interested in Bitcoin from the non-technical standpoint. So we're not, we're not talking about Taproot. We're not talking about those sorts of things necessarily. And, um, but yeah, I find the time at night uh, uh, when my wife and daughter are asleep uh, to, to write, um, you know, mostly uh, with teaching, speaking, and other professional engagements and trying to grow my own um, brand as a writer. And that, so that's what, you know, what I'm working on right now. And I, I aim to get at least one piece out a week. I have a book full of, uh, you know, I writing ideas that I'm keeping and it's always growing at a faster pace than I can cross things off of the list. You guys specifically suggested a writing topic that made it into the book from Twitter and um, made it from the book onto a Substack post that is underway and got railroaded here a little bit with the with the current <laughs> events. But um, I, you know, I love I love writing at the Bitcoin layer, and uh, I do p- hope hope that people that have read Layered Money or liked it um, will continue to follow my work there as we, you know, navigate Bitcoin as on its path to world reserve currency over the you know coming many many years. Having read your book, Layered Money, it's, a, it's very apparent to anyone that has that you are steep, steeped in the history of money, in economics, and you know, all, of these, uh, all of these things. How, what is it that you do or what's your experience in this world that has given you such a depth of thought in the space? Sure. So I, I started studying economics in high school and by and and geopolitics as well in high school and by the time i finished college i had transitioned to away from economics toward political science and finance um and then when i was in college too this kind of shows you how naive we are when we're young i didn't even really understand what the difference between economics and finance were I just thought that those words were sort of interchangeable as a kid. And I was you know, quite wrong about that. Realized that economics is a theory as to how things work. Some of it is very relevant. Some of it is very irrelevant in terms of what I learned in school. But finance and the financial markets and um, interest rates specifically and sovereign debt and the currency markets that's where my interest went uh right right basically right after i understood that finance was where i belonged uh professionally so i pursued the cfa charter uh chartered financial analyst uh which is something that i received uh several years ago and i also have my chartered market technician uh designation which is a technical analysis and behavioral study uh, designation. And I also have um, several years in the asset management industry itself. So I worked as 
um, a middle office person for a little bit, which is doing portfolio accounting, reporting, trade processing, that kind of stuff. Then I was able to move on to an investment team, trading securities, trading U.S. treasuries, trading treasury futures, trading repo, treasury repo, um, money markets, uh, euro dollar futures, and then eventually uh, swaps and German boon futures, FX, other things like that. And as well as I was added to the strategy team, which means that not only are you clicking the buttons to do the trades, but you're involved in the decision process uh, to, you know, as to what to buy, what to sell and when. And I was at a very large shop uh, at that point. So one of uh, dozens of people involved in the investment decision making process. Um, but that whole process of being a prof uh, an investment professional, having institutional clients, being a fiduciary at the highest level, trading with Wall Street, all the biggest counterparties, um, that is where I come from. And that whole process involved studying the Federal Reserve and its inner workings for um, you know about 10 years. In, in from from start to the point where I decided to you know write layered money, so ten years of of deep study of the Fed uh, because of you know early school interest, personal interest, and then professional necessity, and then later on just trying to build up my uh, knowledge base. The thing that stands out to me about layered money is how much of a painstaking exercise that had to be in brevity for you? Because studying some about your background, you, you know your shit. I mean, you understand the never-ending complicated inner workings of the plumbing at, say, the Fed. And it's so easy to miss the forest for the trees on this stuff. And the thing I appreciated about this book is obviously you don't have the time or ability to educate you know, a, a, a newer person about how all these things work, but you were really able to hit the high points and the things that matter functionally currently in the past and potentially in the future. Had to be tough though. I'm sure this book was almost impossible to keep. At, not that it's a short book, but to get it to this size had to be an undertaking, I assume. Well, I appreciate you saying that. There are a couple of things there. One, because it was my first book, I actually it was hard to get the page count up kind of as I was writing it because I had this story, but I, I wanted to make it a full book. I didn't want to just write an article or an essay. I wanted this to be a book. So at the beginning, I struggled to get the word count up. And then at, and then at a certain point, I said, okay, I need to edit this. And I ended up cutting you know, a third of the book back down because you know it was too complicated or there's just too many things that were irrelevant and i really listen at this point in my career this was my one shot to uh write a book to to tell the story of bitcoin and you you know 2020 and look 2021 was the year bitcoin went mainstream my book came out in january so you know you're going to have a whole wave of people that are writing books today that are going to come out anyway I knew I had one shot at this. 
And so I wanted to tell the story as perfectly as I could. And then I do have to bring up, you know, at the, at the point where I did the rewrite and I had a, a great uh, team of editor, you know, people that helped me w- through the story and things like that. But then my wife and my dad for the last month, uh, it was just the three of us. And my dad ha- is a physician, but has a strong finance background, but not a finance professional. And my wife does not have a finance background. So she's reading it as the layperson. Mm. Um, she's excellent with language and English. And so the two of them helped me say, I didn't understand what the hell you're talking about in chapter six or chapter nine. And those were the basically today's dollar system chapter and then the CBDC chapter, uh, chapter nine. Um, and so I, because this chapter nine didn't make sense, I had to rewrite chapter four. And then because chapter six didn't make sense, I had to make sure chapters basically four, five, six, and nine were completely rewritten to make it accessible to the layperson. Playing and, whack-a-mole, uh, basically. Was uh, sorry. You're basically playing whack-a-mole. This part. Oh, yes. This part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and that was a thrilling process to do that with family and to build and to feel that as I was building it up at the end that this is really going to be accessible to everyone uh, because it wasn't just me writing, which is you know the Bitcoin layer. No one reads my stuff before it goes out. Honestly, the first couple times I asked my wife, "Will you just read, you know, read it?" But the pace is too fast now, so I just write and put it out. You'll, it'll be a typo here and there. It won't be as perfect as it could be. But with the book, I really did feel like I had, um, you know, at the beginning four people that were reading it, and then at the end two family members that were reading it, and through those six people. Um, and I, you know, I acknowledge the people that that helped me at the end of the book. It, I really felt like I had something that was short and was truly accessible to everyone, with the disclaimer that okay, chapter six can get a little murky, but you have to actually be interested in how this stuff really functions to get the whole like how our three layer onshore on offshore dollar system works and the the fact that it's a clusterfuck. Yeah. Um we we need to to show that in chapter 6 to really set the table for Bitcoin in chapter 7. Demonstrate the clusterfuck. Um before we get the before the cart gets too far out of the barn here. We want to get into all these specifics in the book. But we would be remiss not to speak a little bit about our first impressions about what's going on globally right now. Um today is or last night was the night that Russia invaded Ukraine. There's so much to unpack here. What are just finance, anything? What are your kind of your first impressions or emotions waking up this morning, Nick, about what's going on globally? Yes. So it has me uh, deep in thought because I will say this. I, what I promised readers of the Bitcoin layer when I came out and I said, you guys have read Layered Money. I want to launch this thing and come along for the ride. Here's what I'm going to pro- provide for you. We're going to provide some research and analysis about Bitcoin, the Fed, the rates markets, 
geopolitics. And I'm going to bring my expertise from all of these angles and let's talk about it. With that being said, I am so far from knowledgeable about Russia, Russian history, Putin, Ukraine, um, and, and going back, I'm, I'm just not strong there. And so right now, I'm in the position where I need to go out and do some learning. I, I'm, a, I'm a reader. You know, I, I like to read books. When I dive into something, I like to read a book about it or two. So I've read uh, you know, a handful of books about China. To me, that's enough to speak about China. When you ask me a question, I'll have an opinion and I'll have comfort in that I've read a few books about China and I know something what I'm talking about. I'm not a China expert, right? But it's part of what I talk about. So I do want to preface it. I, I just, for me, this is something that I have to come in and now um, accept the accept being guilty of not doing the full Putin Russia analysis ahead of time. But quickly, you have to get over that um, and then start making your own analysis. So what I'm doing right now in my process is I'm not reading anything, not even the news. And only forming my own opinion is into using my own common sense. So what do I think? I think that Ukraine is strategically important to Putin. That's one side of it, but that it represents Putin's um, position geopolitically, uh, which is, uh, um, you know, not on the same side as United States of America or the West, maybe on the same side as China. We see the Taiwan news, which is, it has me writing something right now that, is it a coincidence that China is provoking Taiwan at the same time that Russia is invading Ukraine, giving China some cover with the West right. and a distraction? That's something that has come to me as yeah. something that's plausible and, and how I'm thinking about the situation. Uh, I also, one thing that I do have an opinion on is that, you know, the United States is not going to try to fuck with Putin right now. Like, let's yeah. be honest, guys. Uh, there's That's no why he's doing what war. he's doing, yeah. There's no right. winning. There's no, there's no winning. There's no, U yeah, there's no U.S. missiles launched from a U.S. carrier into uh, a Russian base within Ukraine that they've just established or Russia itself. So... That's my basic analysis so far in terms of the markets. I see a lot right now that the Fed is not going to hike rates in March because we have a war in Ukraine. Uh, that is absolutely nonsense. You're, you're nonsense, confident. Nonsense. And you would say you're at the point of confidence in that at this point? Well, it's not me, okay? I just, it's not me. It's the rates markets. Yeah. So I always look at the market to tell me what's happening. And right now, the rates market today, it hasn't changed that much today, is saying that the Fed is going to be hiking over 100 basis points, well over 100 basis points this year, including still a above 100% chance of a 25 basis point hike in March. We basically come down from probably 50 ba basis points in March to, okay, probably not 50, but definitely 25. So this whole like analysis that 
the Fed is going to not hike in March. It's totally imagine. It's imaginary. Okay, you're that type of analysis is making a uh, an an out an out of consensus prediction, thinking maybe that this turns into an extremely hot war. Stocks, U.S. stocks crash fifty percent in the next ten days, and uh, okay, if that happens, I'll we'll talk and I'll say I've changed my mind. We're in a World War Three. The Fed can't raise rates, but is that where we are today? No, you already see it's going to be a swift battle and a sanctions battle, and. Um, you know, they've already come out and said it's all about SWIFT already. Every headline is about SWIFT. Ban Russia from SWIFT. So there's no yeah. World War Three today or next week. So the Fed is going to hike. Inflation's at 7%. The Fed's going to hike yeah. in March. How do you and see that I don't that know how out? long. Yeah, I don't the, know how the long. The SWIFT sanctions is what I'm getting at. Okay. So okay. as I think that's maybe most relevant to how to to Bitcoin at this point, potentially. So let's say the U.S. decides that we're going to use SWIFT and we're going to take action, sanction, carte blanche, Russia is now you know, out of the SWIFT network. Um, Putin has to have game planned that. He'd be a fool not to. And the only monetary network, um, I think the three of us would agree, that has the capability to be used sanctionless uh, worldwide is Bitcoin. How do you think, what, do you, what are your thoughts geopolitically on how likely that is to be what they use in exchange? I mean. I guess they could be shipping gold back and forth, but that seems like like a pretty poor decision in today's world where the US still controls all the seas and it could make them could give them potential serious problems with that. How do you yeah. see that playing out? It's a non-zero usage of Bitcoin to uh, uh off the back of a swift ban. Okay? That's the most important thing here. Bitcoin adoption happens at the margin. And each marginal use case drives at least one person, company, country to use Bitcoin at least one time. That is the key. So Bitcoin stands perfectly to benefit from the SWIFT ban. However, assuming that Bitcoin can right away from day one even service a third or a quarter of what Russia does on SWIFT, it's, it's unrealistic, okay? So, but the victory is the first transaction that does happen because the SWIFT ban, ban, and then they see Bitcoin works, they tell their friends, and the adoption cycle continues. So um, how do I see the SWIFT ban playing out? Russia absolutely has game plan. They've done their... I've read about this. They've done their uh, uh, international wire system their, themselves, so they have the capability to yeah. send money. Wire is just a messaging. Swift is just a messaging platform. Um, so if they have their own messaging platform, they can move money. And they'll find ways uh, to do bilateral money movement without using Swift uh, with their major trading partners. So they'll survive this. And but I'm not. That's not to say that it won't impact them. It's going to impact them. So it will drive some to Bitcoin, yeah. but I don't think it's Bitcoin stands to be a huge beneficiary from day one. Let's say they've been working on this ability to transact without SWIFT for over ten years. I remember seeing headlines in 2012 that they were making they were making trade agreements with China 
uh, cutting Swift completely out. So this is not something that they haven't thought about prior to this. This has been going on for a decade at least. That's absolutely right. And I absolutely remember the first time I read that Russia and China had established their bilateral swap lines to to settle, uh, basically to settle bilateral trade in renminbi and ruble. And that was, to me, the beginning of the end of the dollar as the uh, world reserve currency way before I had heard of Bit- even heard of Bitcoin, uh, let alone understood it. And I, um, if I'm not wrong, I think the first agreement itself was 2010, um, really, really right. soon after the financial crisis. Uh, these two countries were ready to basically engage with each other in a non-dollar settlement sort of way. So yes, of course, Russia is ready for that type of thing. And while while it's important to you know say that Bitcoin won't um, you know achieve a hundred million Russian adopters tomorrow because of the Swift thing, um, it will get its first million, let's say, in the next year uh, at the very minimum. And that's it's absolutely enormous because each country that Bitcoin enters the psyche and the culture, it just reinforces this th- this idea that Bitcoin is the only global money that uh, we have. I have a couple observations and. I appreciated your humility a few minutes ago, Nick, because I think it is important as we engage in these discussions to emphasize the fact that just because the few of us have read a couple articles doesn't mean we're suddenly geopolitics experts on Eastern Europe and Russia. Um, but there are, there are some still some things we can postulate on and take away. Like you guys have identified the Russia's created rails, right, to, to circumvent the current SWIFT system. I also know this is from what Pomp put out this morning that they have a large stash of foreign currency reserves in gold, something like six hundred billion. Like, if you think Putin's surprised by the sanction moves by the United States that have happened and are likely to continue happening, your head's in the sand. That they've gamed this out completely. There's two other things that I was thinking this morning on my way home from work. One is just. And this goes back to your comment about Bitcoin being at the margins. Because what's interesting when you see world events like this is, you know, I'm watching CNN and they're talking this morning about Ukrainian banks on the fritz, like some shut down momentarily. I don't know what the exact predicament is at this moment, but it just makes you realize like Bitcoin is the money of refugees. Like it has that potential. This harkens back to like your Alex Gladstein's like you don't have to wonder if your money's going to be there. You can remember 12 words and protect your hard-earned capital. But Bitcoin is also going to be the money of autocratic dictators who resist Western democracy. So it could breed this whole new brand of FUD. Like This is the new brand of FUD I see coming after this. Let's say Russia is cut off from SWIFT. And in a hypothetical future, the Russians and the Chinese start using the Bitcoin base layer to, you know, move money around, right? Them or or any other world leaders that threaten America, let's say. This could give rise to this whole new finger pointing of, see, this is the currency of the dictators. Has that crossed either of your minds? Yeah, so I, um, FUD is is an interesting one. You know, FUD is basically uh, an incomplete analysis, right? That's what it is. It's, it's, it's focusing on one aspect of something and then casting fear, uncertainty, and doubt over the whole thing. 
by only focusing on one thing. But listen, the FUD will be around. The FUD about Bitcoin boiling the oceans never includes methane capture. And therefore, it's immediately irrelevant from a, from a complete analysis standpoint. So, you know, pointing the finger at Bitcoin for helping Putin is, will be used, okay? But we, we have to just stay uh, settled in our ability to conduct complete analysis, write complete thought. And um, listen, I just like you guys, you're not digesting the media narrative and then believing that you are independent thinkers. And there are more independent thinkers than we give maybe the world credit for. Um, that's why so many people are long Bitcoin. Uh, we, we, we see on Twitter all the time, we are winning. I genuinely believe we as a Bitcoin, uh, as Bitcoin believers and something that's, you know, something that we share in our belief, that belief system is, is winning out over the long term. And we just have to be prepared for all the FUD, get ahead of it, you know, like you're doing today and, um, be, be prepared. You're going to get FUD from everywhere and continue to get it. Um, but we have so many advocates now for Bitcoin that just get it. Um, that gives me a lot of hope. The other thing we have to acknowledge is that regardless of whether their motivations are pure, you cannot blame the Russians or the Chinese from wanting out from under the power that the United States exerts, or exerts over the global financial system. I actually have a quote from Laird Money that says, the world is seemingly trapped inside a dollar-denominated system and is hankering for a monetary renaissance. You then go on to say, half of international invoices are denominated in U.S. dollars, and we make up only 15% of the global economy. Nobody wants out of this setup any more than the Russians and the Chinese. And they may have poor motivations, but you can't blame them from wanting out from under dollar hegemony. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, go ahead, Josh. I was just going to say, and another thing that people need to consider, and this is not trying to sympathize with their position in any way, but they are, in a, they are looking at their borders and saying, we've got NATO all around us and we've got bases all around us. If we had Russian bases in Canada or Mexico, I don't think we would be so friendly towards those nations if they were harboring that. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis from the 60s is an exact um, mirror of that kind of a situation. And we almost started a nuclear war over it. What I wanted to also comment on here is also by no means being a geopolitics expert. I have, however, read a few books that this really <laughs> strikes me as it's just such a bellwether in how the changing world order describes the way history flows. And if you read that book, he goes through roughly the last 500 years of empires rising and falling, giving way to the next empire. And there is this, I don't even know if he uses this term in the book, but I kind of discovered it recently, so I'm going to use it, Thucydides Trap, which is the point at which a waning power um, is maybe not on the same level as the rising power, but that position of one falling and one rising where there's maybe a gray area as to which one is the most powerful power in the world, that is the time when it's most dangerous and when wars generally happen. So the powder keg that we see, while I hope we're correct in that this is just 
a swift action that ends up being no big deal in the long term. It just seems geopolitically that we are at a moment in so many different ways. If you subscribe to the theory of the fourth turning, if you watch these super cycles of debt, if you have read the changing world order and you see the way these superpowers wane and wax with each other, we just seem from a higher level to be intersecting all those points simultaneously. It's a really scary proposition. And um, it's just nuts. Pomp this morning also said, he's like, at some point, this US denominated financial system is going to exit. And so we need to be hedging the system. That's what he used. Like, the US needs to be hedging dollar hegemony. What's likely to take over? It's not going to be the ruble or the renminbi. It's going to be more than likely this nascent juggernaut of a decentralized, totally right. immutable protocol called Bitcoin. Something no, nobody's controlling the money of enemies, which would be the most fair way to run the show. Yeah. And Josh, what you're describing is, uh, you know, a multi-decade transition to a Bitcoin system and a multipolar uh, world. And um, that is absolutely part of my framework. And um, the trap that you're referring to is a school of thought that I subscribe to because of the China stuff. So that's why I mentioned that Russia was a blind spot to me because I've been so focused on mm. the rise of China today and the waxing and waning of these two powers. And it's why I spend so much time reading about Chinese right. history to understand where they see themselves today. Because I know how I'm an American, so I don't have to read a book about how America sees itself. I live it. Yeah. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to understand from that standpoint. So that's why Russia was a blind spot to me uh, recently because I I haven't been thinking I haven't been thinking about Russia I've only been thinking about the U S and China and this and and exactly what you are describing and China I'm sure everyone's sure you know they know they're paying attention to what's going on they're going to use this to measure how far they can push how far they can prod us as far as Taiwan is concerned and using this as cover to potentially may have some action in Taiwan wouldn't surprise either. And that seems to be the way that this could kick off something on a larger scale. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, when we think about China's involvement and maybe the China-Russian alliance, um, that is something to, uh, it's something to consider now if uh, Russia wants to show strength and then have a a, vo a more vocal Russian Chinese alliance because there's been some tension there over the last uh, several years as Xi Jinping uh, is only concerned about his own power and not necessarily about teaming up with Russia to face the United States on the global stage. He's he's been focused on China, so adding Russia into this mix um, does have the potential to, uh, you know. And what you're talking about here is uh, beautifully uh, described by Graham Allison in his book "Destined for War" um, about this uh, about this balance between U.S. and China. I'll have to check that one out, Nick. As we pivot back to your book, "Layered Money," 
I think one of the themes I find most beneficial is you exploring why the current system and the current layers of that system are inherently unstable and then how in a future Bitcoin could step in to bolster the foundations of a system and create more stability. Would you mind just, I know that's a, that's a high level question, but exploring what makes the current system unstable and then maybe we can pivot to how Bitcoin could fix that. Right. So instead of talking about the whole system, I'll try to give uh, like a condensed example of this. Um, this is this uh, idea of proof of keys. So your audience will know that proof of keys is a concept uh, in which an, a Bitcoin exchange can sign something to the blockchain to demonstrate that they have control over XYZ balance of Bitcoin. and um, and then their subscribers, their depositors can see that, yes, in fact, my exchange has Bitcoin. And there are ways to even uh, elevate the quality of audit and disclosure there. So when you talk about a more stable system, if I have a balance at a Bitcoin exchange and the Bitcoin exchange can prove to me beyond uh, reasonable doubt that they have my Bitcoin at all times, uh, it's something that will create, let's say, stability absent anything else. And then we have the situation of a bank that says that you have a deposit, but their way of showing uh, their liquidity position is a quarterly PDF that they email to you that has some numbers on the screen. Right. That's a, that, that's a, there's a huge difference between those two things. So objectively speaking, the technology of Bitcoin allows new ways to view, audit, handle money. Uh, and and to deal with counterparties, uh, that by itself is an advance of Bitcoin that we can't get in um, you know a traditional system. But I will say that the inherently unstable nature of layered money today is evidenced when we have financial crises. Like let's take the repo crisis of September 2019, for example. This is when there was at least one bank out there that could not finance its treasury collateral because of some hedge fund trade that was out there in the market. The Fed had to come in and lend collateral, I mean, sorry, lend liquidity, cash to that bank, uh, which posted treasury collateral, which remember, the treasury collateral is good. So the fact that a bank couldn't even borrow against Treasury collateral because of some liquidity problem shows that this whole system is highly unstable and it can break any day without the Fed coming in either that afternoon or the next morning to save it. And so it's not observable on a daily basis, but we cannot forget when the crisis happens, we have to look at what happens during that crisis, during those weeks or days, and understand that that can repeat itself anytime. And unless the Fed is there to save the day, it will collapse. So this instability of today's system is bandaged by the Fed in many ways. And we can also reasonably expect the Fed to continue to provide bandages 
Yeah, they have to. For, for the, for, they have to. There's nothing else that they can do. So we have an unstable system that is continually, um, you know, man, has, gets manufactured stability from the Fed. And then you have Bitcoin that is its own new system, has no central bank. And so when leverage develops within a Bitcoin system, it's not that the system won't uh, contract because if you have leveraged a leverage system with uh, um, money issued on top of like a, a, a fractional reserve Bitcoin system, yeah, that stuff can default too. So it's not that it will be a stable Bitcoin system. It's just that the the um, mechanism to fix it right. won't in, exist in Bitcoin. So actors will have to be better and establish a, a longer term trust. See, like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, do they deserve our trust after no. uh, becoming holding banks in 08, in September, October of 08? No, just because what their balance sheet is okay. Fourteen years later, we have to forget the the fact that they would have just disappeared. We don't have to forget that, and so the financial system hasn't forgotten it either. Uh, that's why these banks can't borrow in the same way that they used to be able to, and have to use treasury collateral to get the liquidity that they need, as opposed to like LIBOR financing, which is dying, and um and has died. You know largely in part to what's happened over the last 10 years. So I know it's a long answer, but yeah. um, you know, I hope it answers some of what you're going for. This might be an oversimplica- oversimplification of all of this, but let's say that the world was on a Bitcoin standard in 2008. What would have happened is all of those institutions that had overlevered themselves and, and were naked, they would have all been destroyed. And the pieces would have been picked up by some of these smaller, maybe state banks or Anyone in the India's, in the industry that could have picked these pieces up for pennies on the dollar would have done so. It would have been a cataclysmic event and it would have sucked really bad. But instead, we have the lender of last resort, which is able to come in and, by the way, also produce massive moral hazard by bailing out all of these people who are irresponsible, allowing that irresponsibility to create a bigger snowball 10 years later. And here we are. The, the thing I want to get to, though, is that the thing that I think your book enumerates so well, and obviously it's the title, you spelled out in such a very concise way how these layers of money work and interact with each other. And when these cataclysmic events happen, what's going on is it's people trying to climb that ladder up to the more stable form of money. So in the past, it was gold. So there'd be a run on bank. Everyone wanted to bring their gold certificates to the bank and get their you know bit of gold. Now because these treasuries are literally just pieces of paper that can be printed in or just added to a, a spreadsheet or however they do it, there is literally no end to where this can go to the point of that money can be valueless. So there, it, eventually, in one way or another, physics always wins. Like The physics of money is that if you create too much of it, it becomes worthless. Just like if you jump out of a building you can fly for a few seconds before you hit the ground. One way or another, this is going to sort itself out. It would be much better if we could do it without moral hazard. Yeah, under stress, people are going to move up layers the way you have it laid out in this book, right? And we were, we were seeing this, if you're a Ukrainian right now, you're looking to get to closer to base layer money. That's the beauty of the layers in this book. Can you give us 
just a if for people that are like you guys keep saying layer right like and you label let's say bank deposits as like a third layer money in the book like walk us through just the basics of what you mean by layers and what layers exist in the current monetary system sure so the easy to understand framework which doesn't exist anymore is that a country will keep gold in its vault and issue pieces of paper saying this $1 is worth one gold coin in the bank. That would make the gold coin the first layer and the piece of paper, the gold certificate, the second layer. And then a private bank takes that gold certificate and puts it in its vault and then issues a deposit to its client. And that's the third layer now. So you have this idea that gold historically is the actual money with no lender, no counterparty, no balance sheet. And then paper and electronic entries are created, assuming that something at the end of the you know path is in a vault somewhere. And that's the layered money system. Today, though, without gold, the first layer, which is what whatever the Fed owns, is US Treasuries, which as you're saying, is a debt instrument of the US government that can be issued at any time. It can't just be created, it has to be purchased into existence, but we all know that the Fed owns trillions of these anyway, so even if the banks buy them today, eventually they know the Fed will buy them from them if something goes wrong with them. Um, and there and the primary dealers are all are also mandated by law to show up at these treasury auctions and support uh the u.s government borrowing um, they're mandated itself. to show up are they they're not uh, mandated to buy though are they yes they really? are uh this is um so i let's not call it a law but the, for a, a a bank to be awarded primary dealer status mm. by the federal reserve bank of new york which gives them permission to trade with the open market desk at the New York Fed, they have to agree to support pro rata their size of the treasury market at the auctions in the, itself. The primary dealers means the primary market of US Treasury securities dealing to the public and the Fed. The Fed never shows up to the auction, remember. The Fed never shows up to the treasury auction. The primary dealers do, and then the Fed buys securities from the primary dealers. So it is there, they are obligated to do so when they're awarded that primary dealer designation by the Fed. So this is how the treasury, right. the banks, and the Fed all are on the same team when it comes to issuing US government debt. When you when you understand it like that, it seems even it's such a farce. There's so they're many gonna, gymnastics going on. Yeah, there's insane. I mean, these guys are obligated to show up so that they can shuffle some paper from one room to another in order for them to wash their hands of the situation and say, well, in the free market bought those and um, that's the going rate. But it works, man. It works. People are it, it, it obfuscates what's actually happening. It's so complex that the average person can't digest it. So the amount of kickback they're getting on all these maneuvers can continue to proliferate because so few people are able to unpack what's actually transpiring. Yeah, and at the beginning, it's important to remember that at the beginning, this primary dealer arrangement was 
innocent in that it's just the Fed awarding this designation to their club, uh, you know, the country club guys that that own the banks. And they're like, you guys can be the primary dealers and you can make extra money when the Treasury securities go out to the public. You can capture a spread because you're the primary dealers. That's the original intent. It's it's innocent. I mean, it's still uh, cronyism, right? So I'm not saying it's not corrupt or anything like that or wrong, but it's just it was as innocent as cronyism back then. But now it yeah. is the moral ha- the moral hazard that you talk about and the financial crisis and the QE infinity. Now it becomes something that is it's it's very angering when you understand. Yeah. My point is that at the beginning, we can get angry about cronyism, but is that something to lose our shit about? Or should we be, you know, critical of the way it's existing today in a post QE world? And, you know, that's where, where, where the frustration is. I think when people understand, um, why the fed is not their friend and why Bitcoin is an outlet for that. And, uh, you know, gold bugs have talked about this for uh, decades. Yeah, one thing I think of is, you know, there's been this debate some on Twitter about, like, is QE money printing? Actually, Joe Carlosare is the one that really tipped us into this. And we kind of went down this rabbit hole of understanding the mechanics of QE better, the difference between what happened in the GFC and what happened during COVID and bank reserves and how they play into it. But there's really two, there's two kind of fundamental flaws that lead to the amount of leverage we see today. Now, one is the obvious one, which is the, the, the meme that maybe is a little shallow of just money printer go burr. And obviously, like when the Fed is stepping into the market and you know, enabling rampant fiscal spending, like, yeah, broad money supply is growing. But the other dynamic that I think we lose sight of, because it's more, it plays out over over more time is like when you don't allow a system to deleverage, it leads to more leverage. Like that's the sim- simple takeaway for me is like when they know there's always going to be a buyer of last resort, right? And when that base layer can be manipulated, even if it doesn't lead to outright rampant growth in money supply, all the players in the system or the major players in the system know that they're not going to let it deleverage, which over time is going to lead to more leverage. Yeah. More risk taking. Like what That's is, why, do you think that? Yeah. In chapter six, chapter six is called dollar in disrepair. And it specifically cites the Fed has transitioned to the lender of only resort and it cites moral hazard. So we've talked about everything in this show itself. The moral hazard is one component. <laughs> The lender of only resort is the other component. And, and then the, what is the result? It's a system that is in permanent disrepair because you can never get out because you can never deleverage and you never deleverage because the Fed is willing to lend and extend the leverage because a leverage system that contracts will collapse. And so they cannot let it deleverage so it is trapped in its own uh death spiral but the word death spiral is um extreme because it's going to be so slow right they're they're able to extend 
Look yeah. how they're able to extend runway for themselves. They do one QE program and they just printed themselves three years of runway. And then they reverse course and then we'll have another financial crisis at the end of this tightening cycle. I don't know how it's how long it's going to last. Three months, two years, somewhere in between. But then they'll have to do the same thing again. And probably we, more. We, next we time. know that we know that. now. So what if you had to I know this is a total <laughs> this is a total this is a question that you're going to hate. But if you and we, we've been asking a lot of people this lately. If you had to give this some kind of time frame, like how long is this going to take to unwind or before we have some kind of structural problem where they're just going to have to say, all right, we're rolling out this CBDC and this is the new money and you can get this exchange rate to get it to try to cover this thing up the last time. Like how long can this go, do you think? I don't think that a dollar, a digital Fed coin dollar will trade at a... Uh, price that's not par to the current system. So I'll say that, right? When they reset the system to FedCoin away from the current rails, it'll still be a par transfer. They won't, um, you know, uh, blaspheme the currency just like that. They'll keep it, they'll keep it par to par. But how, how long will it take? Um, how long will it take for the dollar to lose its value versus other currencies? I guess maybe like the question other, would be, how long do you think that before the dollar loses its, its hegemony in the world? We're not just looking for years or months. We want a specific day. Yeah, I want it the day. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I want to know what the of price course. of Bitcoin will be in that date too. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, it just can't, like, it can't go on. I, I, I saw you debating a modern, I think it was a modern monetary theorist yesterday on Twitter. Like, we're at all-time high debt levels. Like, how much bigger can this balloon get until it pops, Nick? I couldn't believe that discussion. That was insane. And, I mean, I because okay, first of all, that guy doesn't follow me. I don't know him. I've never spoken to him. So that's that's one thing. But why are you mad at me, bro? Why are you <laughs> mad at me for 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 this headline? I didn't. And you're and then you tell me. That 303 trillion is not a relevant number, has no relevance. Wait, this, Nick, this because, is what I. Because, because, because 303 trillion of debt means 303 trillion of assets somewhere. And that's your argument. That, and, and I've taken accounting. Okay. So I just couldn't. Oh. Here, here. Okay. So he gave this example. <laughs> Sorry. I know people didn't see this, but he was arguing, he was basically making the claim that. Debt over GDP doesn't matter. Okay. Which, first of all, I, I mean, I got to dig into it more. He linked a paper. I plan to read it. I didn't get into it, it yesterday. It was from 2011, though, okay. dude. But his, his, one of his <laughs> analogies, first of all, you just go back into history. We, we referenced the changing world order in Dalio. Like we've seen this numerator over denominator game play out over centuries. It doesn't work. Distill it back to the individual. You can't go into unlimited, untethered amounts of debt and not reach individual financial implosion. And neither can a nation state do that. But one of the examples yeah. he gave was he said, it's like saying that a certain basketball team got 42,000 points scored against them in the season, but somebody scored the points, right? I'm like, well, okay, that's not fair because what <laughs> you're saying, this is how I wanted to respond. I didn't have time because I was at the firehouse, but I wanted to say, if you took the Chicago Bulls and you said 
on average, the last 20 years, they've had 41,000 points scored against them. Okay. But that's trending up. And for the last three years, well, last year they had 47,000 points scored against them and then 52,000 points and then 58,000 points. I can guarantee you they have a losing record, right? The points are going up that are being scored against the team and they're not making the playoffs, man. I, I just, what is even like, how can you not say that that metric matters? And then back yeah. to Josh's question, like how far can we go down this yeah. path? It seems it's, to be all relative, you know, it's all relative to the rest of the world. And we're still kind of like Greg Foss seems to like to say, we'll be the last currency after the, all the others all fail potentially. Um, yeah, uh, but I'm still I, interested in hearing your take on that. Yeah, I think that it's going to take probably um, 20 years for Bitcoin to catch the dollar in terms of the number of people, companies, and countries around the world that denominate their balance sheet at the top of their reporting stack, even if they have you know dollars and all that. Um, in Bitcoin. I think 20 years, because when I think 10 years forward, I still see the US and China going at it for geopolitical dominance and whose sphere are you in? Are you in the renminbi sphere or the dollar sphere? And there's just, there's so much network effect of the dollar that even over that 20-year time horizon, I don't actually think the dollar loses uh, you know, a, no a nominal usage, like meaning if there are uh, a, you know, a billion and a half people using the dollar in some way today, I think there'll still be a billion and a half people using the dollar in 20 years, but then there'll be 2 billion people using Bitcoin by that point, mm. something like that. So yeah. Um, the reason I say 20 years is because it's obviously ridiculous to try to predict. It's because I think 10 years is too soon for Bitcoin to catch the dollar in terms of actual number of people, companies, countries denominating their balance sheet in Bitcoin. I think uh, uh, you know five to 10 years is way too soon for that type of thing. But it, again, it's all at the margin. And so it's happening slowly but surely. This thing uh, is getting spicier. Pomp just uh, tweeted and said, President Biden just announced that every asset in the United States that belongs to a major Russian bank will be frozen. Getting a little spicier. Oh, yeah. And well, Bitcoin's looking a little bit brighter for Mr. Putin. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's the only thing that they can do, right? It's what we talked about at the beginning of this show when we started recording. I said, I'm not a Russia expert, but I promise you, uh, Biden's not sending missiles in to Russia, so they're going to do everything else. It's the SWIFT, it's the sanctions, the bans, the all the cyber warfare. Now, I saw this morning that the U.S. is going to uh, consider launching a cyber attack on Russia. And that's huge. I mean, that's huge stuff yeah. um, for sure. But it's it's not a hot uh, it's not a hot war. And I would say, too, that that type of stuff, Russia and U.S. cyber warfare has already been going on for a very long time um, uh, anyway. So um, there's, there's nothing really that Biden can do outside of these, these sort of uh, tactics. You've got this re recent piece uh, about Bitcoin as life insurance. Uh, I think it's an interesting 
take. Give our audience just the high-level thesis of what you you kind of addressed in that piece on the Bitcoin layer. Right. So what do life insurance portfolios and pension portfolios own predominantly? They own 30 to 50-year bonds in the portfolio. Why? Because the 30 to 50-year bonds allow them to have certainty of cash flow 30 to 50 years in the future when their uh, beneficiaries will be dying or retiring. Right? And so that is why we have long duration fixed income assets. The demand comes from this demand to transfer cash flow from today to 30 to 50 years into the future. Bitcoin accomplishes something similar when you put it in cold storage. You are potentially leaving something unaffected for 30 to 50 years. So Bitcoin in cold storage in some sort of multi-generational wealth planning can act as life ins- a life insurance policy uh, for families that are trying to plan to the future. Now, you know, one Bitcoin today will equal one Bitcoin in 30 years, but you don't know what the dollar price will be at that point. You don't know what you're buying. So um, yes, there's a leap of faith to read the article, but it is a thought experiment. And I do try to come up with catchy titles, not clickbait titles, but catchy yeah. ones so that people will read them. Bitcoin can be a life insurance mechanism for families that are willing to take the dollar price risk and have the necessity to transfer wealth over generations, just like any property will or anything like that. Yeah, I can already hear people criticizing this and saying, well, you don't know if Bitcoin's going to exist in 50 years or if it's going to be valuable. But I think but if my you're, point was that I think you do know Bitcoin will exist in yeah, 50 years. Yeah. What I was getting at, though, is is to say that is discounting the fact that you think the dollar is going to have any value in 50 years or any of these current, you know, fiat currencies right. will. They generally have an average lifespan of 42 years and the dollar in its current form is getting to be that age. Your life insurance policy is denominated in USD. That is a risk. Hedge that That's risk. That's a risk. Love it. We also have to hit this before we let you go, because I know you've been thinking some about Bitcoin for the middle class. Why do you think this is so important for average or median wage earners? Because real wages and real savings rates have been negative for a long time for a lot of people. And now the statistics are reflecting those sort of things. But we know that that has been the situation for a lot of people where their cost of living is going up by more than their salary bar none it doesn't matter what the statistics show we know it we feel it we're living it. people we my, are living it. we're it's living finally, it yeah my yep. we're living it my bur- my uh my readers know about my burrito index that i you know it's a <laughs> it's something that it's not an official thing but like no yeah, it's I official. To, yeah i i used to buy burritos for four dollars when i was when i was a kid and now they're like four, fourteen dollars now <laughs> so you know are you getting for prices from month. around the country, different burrito shops, or I mean, how are we structuring this thing? <laughs> this is a Southern California sample set, and it is strictly in the places that I know have good quality and, um, you know, and, and that the chicken tastes uh, Can absolutely we have, perfect. When are there replacement burritos in this? Is this like a CPI type metric where you're going to replace it with a Taco Bell burrito at some point? Exactly. Or? Same price, no. dude. Still yeah. five bucks. That's <laughs> That's absolutely the point here is that Del Taco, which is my preferred fast food Mexican chain, mm. doesn't doesn't qualify because it's that's the fiat food stuff that we're talking about. You don't know what's in that. 
It's mass produced. I don't really eat Del Taco anymore. I'm talking about a proper burrito from a, from a place that I trust. Like, uh, uh, I used to like Baja Fresh. Sharky's is, uh, you know, my current chain that I use out here. Um, you know, fresh food fast. I and and Rubio's is another great chain. Uh, if you guys are ever out here, best like fish tacos and all that kind of stuff. Those two chains, these are you know franchise places that the burritos used to be four bucks when I was a kid, and now they are fourteen. And I and I think about that the when you put a percentage on it, three hundred percent. And my dad's a physician, right? Which I said I know the you know average uh, physician salary when he started was just getting over six figures. My brother just graduated uh, medical school and the salaries are like not 300% more than they were 25 years ago. They're like 10% more, 15%. It's ridiculously negative real wages and real savings and all that kind of stuff. So my thought experiment for you guys, you'll see this, is that when we were in the bull market in 2017, if you had bought the hype, you weren't even early, but you had actually bought the hype. There were only five weeks when Bitcoin was above 12 grand. So I struck you at 12 grand as an entry price, buying the hype 2017. There were 20 weeks at which Bitcoin traded at 48K last year, right? So basically half the year, Bitcoin was chopping through this $48,000 level. So the middle class had a chance to forex their money from 2017 to 2021 on Bitcoin. And that is something that, the reason I haven't pumped that piece out yet is because I have to figure out how to finally phrase it. I don't wanna hold the middle class guilty for not buying 2017 and like forexing their money. That's not their fault, but I want to show the exercise here about real wages, real estate prices. There's an article that I'm gonna reference about um, that the New York Times wrote, wrote saying, um, here, I'll give you the title. The next affordable city is already too expensive. And it's about Spokane and how, you know, the Portland overflow priced out everyone in Spokane and, you know, real estate prices have doubled in two years. But in a modern day work from home, everything is arbitraged. You have to expect that all prices are going to come up together as people get, you know, go to where the quality of life is. And I want to show a few ways in which Bitcoin can help the middle class, not just by owning, owning raw Bitcoin, but by participating in energy arbitrage with mining, participating in real estate arbitrage, um, things like that. So uh, it's, it's been a very challenging piece to write. I will just say that. Uh, Super and I almost excited deleted it. Yeah, I almost deleted it uh, a couple of days ago, <laughs> but I ended up just uh, you know starting, just keeping going. I'm grinding through it, and uh, hope to deliver something interesting for you guys and for your audience as well. Well, we appreciate awesome. that, and we're doing our best here to ho- uh, to uh, get in some middle classers' ears so that they don't miss out on the next four years. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, there's so much. Uh, there's so much education to be done and there are a lot of open-minded Americans. And that is something that I'm always encouraged about uh, no matter where I go in the U S and I hope that you guys reach as many people as you possibly can, 
can by delivering honest takes and um, like you guys are doing. So you, when, appreciate it. when will you stoop down to Del Taco? Like, so you say I don't Del Taco, but yeah. like, like for me, for example, I need like minimum five drinks. It has to be after 11 PM and you can find me at a Taco Bell. Like when are you, right. when, when can I find Nick, uh, Nick Batia at a, at a Del Taco? So I would say it's been about six plus months since I've been at a Del Taco. I will still, um, grab fries for the family from there. The fries are really good. Um, and I know there's only like three ingredients there, the, the seed oil, the potato and the salt. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so, but I am, I am really trying to eat a lot cleaner now. Um, and, you know, just try to cut it, but, you know, I, I would say, I would say every, every three to six months, you'll find me eating that, that Del Taco spicy chicken burrito and two of them and uh yeah if you're um, going big you know, you're going big yeah, yeah exactly and now my, my my now my four-year-old likes chicken mcnuggets now she's into the chicken mcnugget so oh, yeah. that has been re- reintroduced into my life um what can you do guys you're you gotta both. you gotta you're live bad. you gotta live a little yeah. yeah yeah give our audience a handoff to you and all your material nick uh, i appreciate that dan and josh you guys have been great hosts uh uh, listeners can find all of my links at layeredmoney.com. So you can find links to the Am- Amazon book, the Audible book. Um, you can find the link to my Substack publication called The Bitcoin Layer. Uh, there's a su- subscribe button right at the top of my website. Um, you can also find my Twitter handle and um, and and some and some foreign translation links as well. Everything available for you guys at layeredmoney.com. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. We really enjoyed this. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah.